This is Strange Assembly episode 250, Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica and Waterdeep, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. I'm Chris Stevenson, and you're listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. Today is going to be all Dungeons and Dragons all the time. But before I dive into the new D&D game books I'm going to be talking about today, I did want to mention on one last podcast episode that we are currently conducting a giveaway of the Dungeons and Dragons Art and Arcana of Visual History book. This is an awesome tome that is the greatest collection of Dungeons and Dragons imagery that has ever been assembled. It's 440 pages long. It's enormous. We're giving a copy away. What you want to do to be eligible to get a copy is to go on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, leave us a review there, and that will give you one entry. You do have to make sure to email me. I'm chris at strangeassembly.com so that I know who you are, who has left this review. So leave a review on iTunes, email me chris at strangeassembly.com, or if you happen to support us on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash strangeassembly, you will automatically be entered into the giveaway. The end date for all of this is December 1st. You need to have left the iTunes review and let me know by December 1st, or for the Patreon route, you have to be a supporter on Patreon as of the December 1st collation of that information. Okay. And that is to get a copy of Dungeons & Dragons Art & Arcana, A Visual History. Of course, you can also buy it on Amazon or at your local bookstore or friendly local gaming shop. Of course, if you want to hear more of this podcast, you can find us on iTunes or through the Apple Podcasts app. You can also catch us on our website. That is www.strangeassembly.com. We're also on the usual social media, at Strange Assembly on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Strange Assembly. And if you hit us, we're at Strange Assembly on Instagram. And over the coming weekend, you'll get a lot of cool stuff coming from PAX Unplugged. But back to the Dungeons and Dragons. November 2018 has been a very exciting Dungeons and Dragons month, I think. Uh, in addition to the ancillary products, that we've gotten, like the Art and Arcana, like the, the kids' books, the 1, 2, 3, and ABCs of D&D, we have gotten two, two actual Dungeons & Dragons game books. And I totally get Wizards of the Coast's model on D&D 5th Edition. It's been wildly successful. But I have to say that I'm super pumped about getting two D&D books in one month. And I'm super pumped about getting another setting and player option book, and one where D&D is finally doing this seemingly inevitable crossover between Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons, the two biggest properties in role-playing gaming and board and card gaming, respectively. That is, I think, fantastic to see these together. And so... I'm going to start with Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. Now, if you've played Magic the Gathering, you've probably heard of Ravnica. 
it's been around three different times. So regardless of when you showed up playing, unless it was really, really old school and that's it, you were probably playing when there was a Ravnica set. But maybe you haven't played with Ravnica anymore. So let's give you a little bit of an overview. Ravnica first appeared in 2005, and it came back a second time for a return to Ravnica block in 2012, and now it is back in 2018 with Guilds of Ravnica. Ravnica is a world city plane. So maybe there's some existence of the plane that's outside of the world city of Ravnica, but if there is, it doesn't really matter. It is one gigantic city, and as you can tell from the use of the word guilds in a lot of these things, right? Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. The original expansion was Ravnica City of Guilds. The 2018 expansion is Guilds of Ravnica. These guilds are the most defining thing about how Ravnica works. In Magic the Gathering terms, each of them represents one of the two color pairs. In Dungeons and Dragons terms, that is not a relevant concept, but if you know the Magic the Gathering, you can see how those things affect how the Dungeons and Dragons aspects work because it relates to things like which of the new player character races will be more likely to work with which of the guilds. But exactly what the relationship between the guilds is varies depending on what the time is, and there's some meta plot going around that's not that big a deal. But the main thing is that the guilds are always to greater or lesser extent at each other's throats. There's this guild pact that tends to preclude open warfare between the guilds, so you don't have active large-scale fighting, but you have scuffles and skirmishes, and you certainly constantly have politicking and maneuvering throughout the city. Note that Ravnica is also a a high fantasy high magic sort of setting if you've played in eberron before and i that's probably more likely lately since they've been releasing eberron content on DD beyond it is reminiscent of eberron in that way where you have a lot of semblances of modern technology in parts of the city that run on magic so there are things like internal plumbing and elevators and nice smooth streets in large parts of the city. This is not a medieval city that happens to have magic. It is an urban civilization that has been transformed by the presence of magic. So, like Eberron in that way. Uh, And note that although Ravnica is this mammoth world city, the book does not try to describe the entire city in one thing. You've got this general notion of what the city is, but you do have a chapter in the book that zooms all the way in to one district of the city. That one district has six different precincts. All of those precincts are detailed, and it makes sure to include substantive hooks for all ten guilds in there. So again, if if you've played Magic at all, you know that Magic likes cycles. If you've played any of the Ravnica expansions at all, you know that that tends to be very big cycles because you have these cycles of 10 cards where every single guild gets something. And you'll see that sort of cycling repeated as you go through the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica book, right? Every single faction does get an equal presentation. 
Every single faction has the same sort of discussion of what it thinks about other factions. Hint, they don't like any of them. That basically sums it up. You get special magical items for every single faction. Like, some of the most iconic cards are charms and traditionally Magic the Gathering charm spells are modal spells that you choose one of three different options at the time that you cast it, and that is replicated in Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica with one-shot magical items that when you use them, they vanish. So that's like casting an instant in the game, and everybody who sticks around long enough is going to get at least one of these because all of the guilds have something to do with rank and renown that provides you with particular benefits, and at one point the benefit that that kicks out is the charms. Similarly, there is a set of magic items that are the key runes, which is another set of cards. Every guild is going to get stat blocks that represent a little bit of what is in the guild that is not a player character sort of species that is going to include a massive leveled guild leader those range from i think a challenge of 16 for say the simic guild leader to uh you know somewhere in the mid 20s for niv mizzet if you feel like going and getting roasted by an elder dragon not the nickel bolas kind because he's not in this book thankfully but in addition to those high-level stats, you get some more mid-level creature or NPC sort of stat blocks, and then a list of, oh, here are the stat blocks in the core books, the core Dungeons and Dragons books, that you would use with this guild. The Boros have soldiers, shockingly. Now, one of the nice things when you dig down into what is presented in the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, the guilds, and the new player options, is that there is a lot of cross-referencing that goes on. So if you're looking at it and saying, oh, I'd really like to play a Loxodon, and you look at the Loxodon entry, it will tell you these are the guilds that the Loxodon are likely to be part of. If you look at the section on character classes and say, oh, I want to play a Ranger, it will tell you which guilds are you know, actually going to use Rangers. And then if you look at the guild section, that will tell you okay, you want to play somebody who's in the Golgari Swarm. These are the player character races that tend to function in this guild, and these are the classes of characters that this guild intends to use. So if you want to play a Goblin Barbarian, you're probably not going to be in the Azoria Senate, right? But from a, a Dungeons & Dragons point of view, you look at alignment with these more than color, even though, again, the magic colors really inform what these options are. So you have the Azoria Senate. These are primarily lawful, secondarily neutral, and that is the legislature, law enforcement, and general governmental functions of Ravnica. You have the Boros Legion, which is a primarily good, secondarily lawful force, which is the formal military of Ravnica. They are probably the organization in Ravnica that is most likely to just kind of rush in and engage in some sort of martial conflict because it's the right thing to do, or at least they've judged that it's the right thing to do. House Demir is primarily neutral, secondarily evil, 
And this is a guild of spies and assassins. The Golgari Swarm, also primarily neutral, secondarily evil. This is the faction of life and undeath out of death and decay. So lots of undead, lots of fungus, and swarms of things. As you could probably tell from the title. There are the Gruul clans, and you could pretty much sum up their philosophy as Gruul Smash. They are heavily chaotic with a little bit of neutral in there, and they exist on the edges of Ravnican civilization with the goal of destroying that civilization. The Izzet League, primarily chaotic, secondarily neutral, are the mad scientists of Ravnica. They like to watch things go boom. Uh, the Orzov Syndicate is, like the Azorius Senate, primarily lawful, but these guys are lawful evil because they're basically a crime syndicate masquerading as a religion-slash-bank. There's the Cult of Rakdos, which is primarily chaotic, secondarily evil. Rakdos is a demon, so you can probably draw the natural conclusions about the wholesomeness of his organization. Ninth is the Selesnia Conclave. This is the other faction that is primarily good, although it is a neutral good rather than lawful good, whereas the Boros were lawful good. The Selesnia are, are nature and community focused. Of course, this is the white-green faction if you're coming from magic. So they tend to believe in living in harmony with nature as much as you can in a high-fantasy urban city. <laughs> and in the good of the community over the good of the individual, but it is, a lot of it is just pretty standard good guy stuff. Finally, there's the Simic Combine, and the Simic Combine is a neutral faction, and like the Izzet, they are a scientifically-minded guild, but unlike the Izzet, they are a much more methodically scientific guild. They are also more interested in biotech, than they are interested in just random explosions, which does seem to be the primary interest of the Izzet. But, what if you don't really care about Magic the Gathering? What if you don't really care about the importation of these new factions? Well, Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica does have a half dozen new playable races, which is a lot. For D&D 5th edition. You get centaurs, goblins, loxodon, minotaurs, simic hybrids, and vidalcan. So uh, centaurs are, you know, the sort of thing that you'd expect a centaur to be. They are medium centaurs. There are some special characteristics that take into account the fact that they have four legs instead of two. So they have a harder time with some kind of climbing, but they're pretty strong and they have natural weapons and they get bonuses when they're charging you. Similarly, the Loxodon, who are humanoid elephants, are very big and count as large for some purposes, but are ultimately medium. These guys have the sort of calm, everything's alright vibe until you finally push them too far and then they can go on a terrifying rampage, so watch out for that. Probably mechanically, the things that defines them the most, other than being big, is the trunk, because it can be used as a prehensile appendage and gives them a keen sense of smell. Goblins are really what you'd expect from a goblin. Ravnican goblins are a little crazy, a little sinister, and a little comedic. 
They're small, they're dexterous, they have dark vision, they get a minor bonus when attacking something that's bigger than them once a day. Minotaurs are a a very organized, tactical sort of species. They also, like the centaurs, get bonuses when they're being aggressive, and they have these natural horns, and they have intimidation powers. The Vidulcan are, I think, a creation of necessity. Sometimes magic has to do this. We need a generic sort of race to serve as the small 2-2 creatures of a certain faction, and so they at some point invented the Vidulcan, who are blue-skinned, highly rational humanoids, and in the long run, the purpose that they serve in magic is to give something other than merfolk for them to use with blue, although they are partially amphibious. In mechanical terms, they are smart and they get extra proficiencies. So if you're you know, always looking for more skill proficiencies, the Vidalcan are one way to do that. Finally, there's the Simic hybrids, who are indeed created by the Simic Combine. These are humanoid races that the Simic have modified in certain ways, and it doesn't really matter what the base is, you're going to end up with the same sort of stats, right? They all are tough, they all have dark vision, but then you get to choose at first level. Either you have a climb speed, or a swim speed, or you have the ability to glide, and that is represented by you literally having some sort of wings or having extra arms to climb or having modifications to your appendages to let you swim. Uh, and you get to make another choice like that at fifth level where you say, oh, I want to have some extra armor or I want to have an acid attack. So all of that, I think, is is really good. So I'm really excited, as I mentioned earlier, for two of the primary aspects of Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. One, it's got more player options. I always like to see things like new playable races, and it's got any sort of campaign setting material, which I know, again, I know that there's a reason why they don't try to maintain a dozen different campaign settings all at once, but you know, I'm, I'm old school, so I, I still like to see that come back. And then second, I really like the Magic the Gathering crossover. You know, if you're going to bring over some new campaign setting, yeah, bring it over from something that's cool and different. I have to admit, it already makes me look forward to the next time that Magic the Gathering releases an Innistrad set. So maybe they can do a, a horror D&D Innistrad setting to go along with Curse of Strahd. This is despite the fact that I don't actively play Magic in a serious way anymore. My, my, my Magic these days is following Mark Rosewater and buying a dual deck every once in a while. There was a time in my life when I played a lot of Magic, but not now. So I, I don't think that actively playing Magic is something that you need to get a kick out of the Magic of the Gathering aspect of this. And I think that the things that they do in the book, in addition to being nifty concepts, are things that you would want to see. You do get a nice, solid description of what all the guilds are and what their role is in Ravnican society. You get that whole little district to start playing in if you want to do that. Or, of course, you can create your own district and do what you're going to do in Ravnica. I like the new creature options. I, I, I mean... Goblins are a little comedy-focused usually for me, so I'm, I, I could really 
take or leave those guys, but right, not everybody has to be for me. So just seeing options like the Loxanen and Centaurs and Minotaurs, I'd like to see more options like that, and the versions of them that they've presented in this go book are good. The one downside I think that there is to the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica is that there are some challenges uh, for the players to some extent, but especially for the DM in bringing a campaign into Ravnica. And I wish that they had spent a little bit more time addressing that. Instead, we get things that I don't really have any use for, like randomizer tables for who's the villain in your campaign or, you know, who's causing troubles this day. And I, I like that they present little locations with maps for each of the factions to go with that. But in Magic, when you're playing Ravnica, you can play whatever you want. Right? If I like the play style of blue-black, I can play a Demir deck and whatever. I'm going through and I'm destroying the mind and stealing stuff from the other players. Who cares, right? It's, it's a two-player duel game, at least in standard format, a two-player duel game, where you're trying to defeat the other person. But that's not the case in Dungeons & Dragons. So all of a sudden, something like a Demir character could be problematic, because now, my objective, unless you're another Demir character, is to undermine you in some way. And so, as a DM, you have to balance the natural desire to want to have the option to use any of these guilds with the limitations that come with that. Like, it's easy to put together a party if everybody's from the same guild. There are some combinations of two or three guilds that you could do pretty easily with. But if you just say, okay, I've got four to six players, be whatever you want, you're going to have a hard time getting a Grohl character and an Azorius character in the same party for any length of time. Those characters really just have diametrically opposed viewpoints and i mean violently opposed similarly D does not require that characters be good but the sort of activities that you usually engage in in DD are generally geared towards a good sort of mindset or at least not an evil one right you're going out you're defeating monsters you're saving people usually there's some sort of good sort of motive there, in addition to the loot that you're going to pick up along the way. Well, four out of the ten guilds are evil organizations. That doesn't mean you can't have a non-evil member of those organizations. There's probably, you know, a reasonable number of neutral ones, but you're still a member of an evil organization. And the Grohl, although they aren't evil, are dedicated to destroying civilization. I mean, honestly, that is kind of weird that we don't even that's not conceived of in evil terms in, in this way but it means that you have five of the factions that are something that for a lot of campaign styles the dm is going to really have to consider so i would have liked to see more of a discussion in the Guildmaster's guide to ravnica of how to go about doing that and i think that that would have been a better use of page count than what we did get, 
which, like I said, was, was some of these tables, which are not, not super useful to me. So that's the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. I think it's great if you want more player options. I think it's, it's good if you just want some sort of new campaign setting. I think it's great if you have a history with magic, and let's face it, a lot of us do. It's really exciting to see the magic and the Dungeons and Dragons come together, and I think it's just a, a great book and well worth picking up. But in addition to that, within a week of the release of Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, we got Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Now, earlier this year, a few months ago, we got Waterdeep Dragon Heist. And these books are sort of set up to go together, right? One of them takes the characters up to level 5, and then the other one begins at level 5 and goes the rest of the way all the way up to 20. And they're clearly branded together, right? They're both branded as Waterdeep. They both take place in Waterdeep, but they don't really have that much to do with each other. You could drop characters starting at level 5 into Dungeon of the Mad Mage, and it really would make no difference whatsoever that you didn't do Dragon Heist. And the sort of adventure that you have in Dragon Heist is completely different from the sort of adventure that you're going to have in Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Dragon Heist was an adventure that involved really living with and getting among the different people and factions and organizations of the city of Waterdeep. Dungeon of the Mad Mage is a super dungeon. And that's it. It is a super dungeon. There is a little bit of, oh, here's a quest of thing that you're going to find in the super dungeon. Please bring it back up to me. But that's about the level of involvement that you're going to have with the surface world while you're playing through this adventure. So Dungeon of the Mad Mage is about the densest 5th edition product. So it's got 23 levels, 23 levels of Super Dungeon. And in order to fit that Super Dungeon in, the book actually goes over 300 pages, which is bigger than your usual D&D 5th edition book. So they've already crammed in extra pages. It also then has a relatively limited bestiary section. So what you instead see as you're going through the dungeon is call-outs to the things like NPC stat blocks. So you're going to see a lot of archmages, for example, right? where it's like, use the archmage stat block, but with these two modifications. And they also did without the sort of introductory text that you might be used to seeing when you're going through adventures and campaigns, the sort of when the player characters walk into the room, read this. Or when the player characters start talking to this PC, this is what they say in a blocked out quote format that you can just read. That's gone as well. And so all of the page count, instead of having some of that fluff or instead of having a little bit of extra unique monster stat block, it is just dense let's see how big and extensive a dungeon we can fit in here to give to the players. So how you're going to think about that is probably going to depend on what you're looking for. If what you want is a really dense super dungeon and you want to get as much on that front out of the book as you can, that's going to be a big upside. If you want to be able to just read a rote description and you don't want to have to look at the actual mechanics and then 
describe it in your own words, that's going to be a downside. So there are some commonalities between a lot of these 23 levels. And I'm not in this format going to go through and really talk about the individual levels. We did some of that in the written review on the website. So if you go to strangeassembly.com, if you're reading this shortly after its release, it'll be near the top. Otherwise, you can just search for Waterdeep and it'll come up. But there are some commonalities between those 23 levels. A lot of them feature multiple factions. So you'll go on to the level and there will be, say, a group of Duragar battling it out with some Hobgoblins, battling it out with some Xanathar Guild ruffians for control of that level. And that's, that's a relatively high level sort of thing. You get more and more exotica as you go down. So there is the ability to play those factions against each other a little bit, or at the very least, talk in a friendly way to one of the factions, get information on the other faction, and then go kill that other faction. However, probably at the end of the day, on most of the levels, you're just going to be killing everything eventually. So it's not the sort of thing where you're going to have extensive ongoing effects on different levels of the dungeon based on what you did on others. There's some limited things. There's some go to this dungeon, get this item, and bring it back to the other level. Or if you destroy the this item on a particular level, like say, I don't know, somebody's phylactree, then that may piss them off. If you run into them on a later level, I don't know why. But there is some thematic connection. There's a little bit of, oh, there's, you know, drow on this level and then on the next level there's another batch that's a scouting group from that first party there are halister references at various places you'll run into a clockwork version of halister and a golem version of halister and an illusion version of halister and lots of halister sensors and that sort of thing it's there there's also a set of gates that are all around that are literally level locked but then once you get high enough level, you can use them to jump back and forth between levels of the dungeon. So if nothing else, you don't have to actually walk all the way down through 20 levels of dungeon. Because you, of course, can't teleport because as per usual for this sort of adventure, anything that would just let the party circumvent going through the dungeon by destroying the walls or teleporting is not allowed. But... While there is some little bit of thematic relation, these are mostly freestanding levels. You could do some pop and drop and, and dump them somewhere else. There's just enough connection that you'll have to ignore, say, the Halister sections. But really, the thematic connection is mostly just that Halister is referenced in all of them, and they really lean into the mad mage thing. So sometimes the theme of Halister is more like theme of crazy guy. So any kind of random weird thing that you run across, the explanation is probably Halister was feeling weird that day. And so poof, he decided to put this in his dungeon. It might kind of depend on, on this. Do you think it would be amusing to run into, I don't know, a naked statue of Halister wearing a cowboy hat and riding a donkey. If that's the sort of thing that you want to have pop up, well, then the crazy theme of Dungeon of the Mad Mage is probably going to work for you. 
If you don't, it's probably not going to work for you quite as much. So, as you can probably tell, I think that Dungeon of the Mad Mage is going to be more divisive as a product than Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. I really think that Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica is great. I know I say it's great if you like this and it's great if you like that, but I kind of feel like by the time I've listed those, I'm covering most players. Dungeon of the Mad Mage is really just leaning into the we want to have a really big dungeon. It does not have other thematic elements that are going to draw people in once you get past the we want to have a super dungeon concept. Again, there's not a lot of theming going on with the super dungeon. It can get a smidge repetitive on the kinds of enemies that you're fighting. Not that there there are there are some levels that stand out a little bit more. When you get to the Githzeri level, that one's pretty good. There's a Magical Academy level. That one's different. But there's a lot of it that's, you know, go in, kill the Durgar, kill this group, kill that group. You're done. And exactly what kind of creature it is that you're killing changes as you go down. So again, that is Waterdeep, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, Giant Super Dungeon. If you want a Giant Super Dungeon, this is the 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons place to get it. If you don't want a giant super dungeon, Dungeon of the Mad Mage may not be for you. But Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica is great, and I do still love seeing more D&D 5th edition product come out. Before I wrap it up, one last reminder, we are doing that giveaway for the Dungeons and Dragons Art and Arcana, A Visual History. Hop onto iTunes, Leave us a review, send me an email, chris at strangeassembly.com. That will give you one entry into this giveaway. Or if you go and support us on Patreon, no minimum, no particular minimum amount required. Just support at any level, and then you'll also automatically be entered in. If you happen to leave us a review and be supporting us on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash strangeassembly, then you'll be entered twice. So we'll look for you there. Thanks for listening, and thanks for entering. You have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there, in the Google Play Music Store, in Stitcher, on Spotify, in the Apple Podcast app, on iTunes, really anywhere. If you're using a podcatcher that we're not on, send me an email, let me know, I'll make sure that we get on it. I'm Chris at strangeassembly.com. I always like to hear from you, whether it's about that contest or something else. Your comments, your criticism, your feedback, or God help us, your praise. Always love to hear any of that stuff. You can also find us on the usual social media. We are at strangeassembly on Twitter. We are facebook.com slash strangeassembly. And we're at strangeassembly on Instagram. Feel free to hit us up on any of those as well. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.